Welcome back to another episode of the Global Surgery Series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm Cynthia Choya, and I'll be your host today with Josh Wiederman. We're joined by David Nolan and David Shade to talk about different types of careers in global surgery. These can range from short-term surgical trips to living full-time abroad. Our first guest is David Nolan, who is a board-certified facial plastic and reconstructive surgeon. He currently works at the AIC Kijabe Hospital in Kenya, where he has lived with his wife and children since 2015. He has helped develop an otolaryngology head and neck department there, as well as a multidisciplinary cleft team. Thanks for being here today, Dr. Nolan. Thanks for having me. Our next guest is David Che, who is a facial plastics and reconstructive surgeon. His main interests in global surgery include cleft lip and palate, global burden of disease assessment, as well as leveraging technology to improve post-surgical follow-up. He participates in global surgery work around the world, including in Zimbabwe, Malawi, Guatemala, and he's currently living in Rwanda. He has done work with Doctors Without Borders, specifically in reconstruction for patients suffering from NOMA. Thank you so much for joining us, and we're happy to have you, Dr. Shea. Thank you so much. I'll start out the first question. When we are talking about global surgery, there's kind of a pyramid in my mind on how we can participate as surgeons. Down at the bottom, which is also the biggest portion, are those of us who can spare a couple of weeks a year, uh, given our academic or private jobs, and we come over and do surgery and do some education and then come back. We call those short-term surgical trips. There's a middle tier which can participate in some of the big organizations like Medicine Sans Frontier or Mercy Ship or specialized hospitals all around the world where uh, academic programs or private programs and NGOs are working together to give care. Uh, and then in the upper tier, I kind of divide it out into those who do policy work and, and are working from the top-down approach of, of changing healthcare locally and global surgery. And then the two of you who dedicate their lives, or at least most of their lives, to living abroad uh, and building capacity in those areas. So I'd love to start uh, with you, Dave. Can you give me just a little bit of background on how you came to make that decision to live a big portion of your time abroad rather than uh, at your academic job? Love to hear your thoughts. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Josh and Cynthia, for having uh, Dave Nolan and I on. This is a great idea, I think, to just to have a conversation like this. Um, and it's something that we would have, you know, probably Dave Nolan and I would have loved to have heard this type of thing when we were thinking about these um, ideas for our life. But uh, what you were asking about, Josh, is like how, how to come to that idea. And I think that um, part of me always, the reason I was interested in medicine was because it was, it's, in some ways, it's sort of like a passport to the world. Like you, you can go so many different places and you could have that certain interaction with people who are in need, even if you don't necessarily speak the language, but it allows that direct care to someone in this, this is, it's a little bit unusual in that way. So I knew that that was a central part of medicine. I think a lot of people go into medicine and surgery for that reason. And, uh, but it's very hard to manage that in their career um, coming out of residency in the U.S., so I, I looked for that, and that was my primary objective, and that was what I kept seeking when I was looking for a position with some element of time, more than one or two weeks, something more in the range of a couple months where I could spend 
um, overseas and build build a relationship with a department and contribute. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about how COVID has affected this. But prior to to COVID coming on, can you give us a idea, like a forty thousand foot view? of your yearly life, how much of it is spent abroad versus home, and uh, how you make that work? Sure. For So I work at, I have a split practice. I work at, at Boston, where I am faculty there, and I you know teach residents and have a practice and see patients. And that amounts to about, about seven months a year, and five months a year is away from that location. And most of that time, the vast majority is in Rwanda, where I'm at the Central University Teaching Hospital, where I am now. And that's spent as faculty here in the Department of Otolaryngology here, which is just a few, two other faculty members. At a time when I came was just one other faculty member. But over time, that's been about eight years now, um, that's grown up. And there's been actually about 10 graduates who, have, who are in satellite locations in the country. So there are a few other, while I'm here I do spend another month a year in Nigeria with Medsong Song Frontier on NOMA work. And I've also had some shorter term projects in Nepal and Zimbabwe, which are teaching and research focused. So that's how my, my year usually looks. And I'm just, and then my family and I kind of go back and forth each year and we build that into our life. And, and that's an extremely unique creation, I want to, to tell all the viewers. It, it, it takes a lot of work, I imagine, to create something like that. But I wanted to transition over to David because, uh, you know, Dave spends months at a time abroad. But when we're tallying up your time abroad, we need to speak in terms of years. So where are you now, David? And how long have you been there? And, and how are you able to be there? Yeah, thanks for having us on here. Yeah, I think our career paths are a little bit unique. And like Dave said, I wish, you know, I'd been able to hear from somebody with these career paths when I was walking down these initial steps. Someone even told me, hey, if you want to do global health, you shouldn't do otolaryngology because that's impossible. And so I would just like to encourage you know, anyone listening that it's not, and you just have to think outside the box. So I, my wife and I moved to Kijabi, Kenya in March of 2015. So we've now been here seven years working at a hospital called AIC Kijabi Hospital. And so we initially came with an organization called Samaritan's Purse. Samaritan's Purse does a lot of different uh, relief work in different areas, uh, refugee work. They set up hospitals in kind of disaster areas. Um, and then they have a, a kind of a spinoff called World Medical Mission where they will fund people for two years to go to one of their 50-some-odd partner hospitals and work, and work there with the goal of transitioning to something called a long-term sending agency. And so they essentially eliminate all the hurdles of wanting to do um, this sort of work. It does come from a faith background, and that's kind of one of their, their focuses. 
and so their goal is to is to partner you for two years with a, with a hospital. They work in Central South America, Asia, and in Africa. And so I kind of tell people they're they're like the Match.com of medical missions, where I say, "Hey, I'm ENT, facial plastic surgeon, and like long walks on the beach." And so then they match you with a hospital that has all of these needs. And uh, Kajabi Hospital had actually asked them, said, "Hey, we are." interested in trying to develop an ENT department. And we're also interested in a multidisciplinary cleft team, as well as, you know, increasing some free flap capabilities. And all of those were things I was interested in. And so when I was looking at different places, it just became clear that that it was a good fit. One of the nice things with Samaritan's Purse is they give you funding for a few years, which allows you to get your feet wet and then go back and try to raise support to stay on longer. So, um, you know, I guess I would call this vein of kind of global health kind of like a faith-based NGO. And so there's a lot of these... Uh, what you call sending agencies where you, they're, you know, 501c3 organizations in the U.S. So people get, you know, tax deductions for donating to them. And so when you sign on with them, they help you with, you know, everything from the logistics of moving to being a, a an account where people can send money to this account um, in a tax deductible way. They help you with your insurance. Um, they help set up malpractice insurance here. There's all these, there's a lot of different logistical things um, that are involved. And so after being here for two years, we just went around to various places and people and said, hey, this is the number that we're told we need to return back to Kajabi. And once we're able to raise that support and get pledges from people, then we move back. That's really awesome to hear about all of the organizations that helped you both in your paths to uh, having the careers that you have now. And for our listeners, we're going to have links to these opportunities and organizations if you're interested and want to learn more. But a question that I do have is, um, before you got to that point of crafting your career around global surgery, did you participate in any short-term trips as a resident or a fellow? Um, what are the pros and cons with that approach compared to the model that you are practicing in now? David, you can start with that one. Sure. So I went on one trip to Zambia, which wasn't really medically oriented, but I sought out the ENTs there at the local teaching hospital and kind of shadowed them for a few days um, while I was there just to kind of see what, what life was like there, what practicing medicine was there. I didn't touch a patient, wasn't really involved in much other than just kind of learning what the system was like. And then I also went on a trip to Guatemala just to see, to, to be more active working with residents. I actually you know, being involved with patient care alongside the residents there. And in fellowship, I did two other short-term trips. Um, to me, those trips were mostly just to confirm what I was thinking because I had always been interested in living abroad out of the U.S. Um, and practicing medicine. And so to me, those trips were not so much about direct patient care, although there was direct patient care. It was more trying to confirm what I was suspecting I wanted to do. 
And so I thought they were very helpful in in my career decision of choosing to live outside of the U.S. Okay, that makes sense. And what about you, Dave? I I also um, well actually so I I grew up in Nepal and Kathmandu early on. My folks worked for an NGO called Save the Children, and so um, I think early on I was kind of you know was in the in that world. Um, they, they were not medical, but there was a lot of health related aspects to the to what they provide. And then um, at some point, then we moved back to the United States, and during that time in in high school and um, and in college, I uh, spent time in Africa in medical settings. Um, also, you know, spent took took a semester during um, college and also spent that in Bhutan in a medical setting. So I think every step of the way, looking for an opportunity to contribute. And at first, it's a very small, it, it's more of an experience, really, you, you're getting the experience and really contributing very, very little, maybe at this stage, because you have very little medical training at that time. But it just kind of what Dave Nolan was saying is just kind of reconfirms and reminds you what the what the goal is and what the target is and what your interest in your passion is. So you're keeping that alive. Um, and then during medical school, the same thing, tried to spend two months, you know, really worked hard to spend two months in Guatemala in for two rotations. And then residency brings a big challenge because, you know, you're, you're working really hard. There's just not a good opportunity to, to do, to do this very often. Um, sometimes you can get lucky and, and, you know, attend a kind of tag along with another short trip, a, a one week trip. But um, with the re I fought very hard to have my residency program, have my research rotation allow for about, you know, six, about a month and a half in Zimbabwe at that time at a, at a rural uh, hospital. And that wasn't, that's hard, hard to, to do. But um, I think that along the way, those experiences confirm and then remind you, you know, of what that passion is. So you don't lose track of it, essentially. Yeah. And what, what is so interesting about this is you guys get the perspectives, I think, on both sides of things. And, and when I lived in Ethiopia, you know, granted, I was only there for a year. I noticed a, a big difference in, in the sustainability factors of what you could achieve by being there every single day for months and months and months, working with the same people, understanding the burden of disease, understanding the limitations and working from there versus having a team come in, do a specific surgical good that, that hopefully is needed at that time in that place, and then moving on. Do you feel that through your guys' perspectives, you've been able to create a sustainable model or a sustainable infrastructure uh, at your respective institutions with the time you're, you're spending there? And David, I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective first, you know, being there for just so long. Um, do you feel like capacity has increased significantly at those institutions? Sure. I think, yeah, I think that's a great question. Capacity has increased at our institution quite noticeably over the past seven years, but I think that I have very little to do with that. One thing that I think, and I, I forgot who said this, but I think it's actually really true is we tend to overestimate what we can do in a week or what we can do in a year and tend to underestimate what we can do in a decade. And there's a lot of people in our community that are, you know, not from 
Kenya. And some of these people have been here in Kajabi for 20 plus years. And so the hospital itself has been around for a hundred years, a little over a hundred years. And just the capacity has just slowly, slowly, slowly increased during that time period. I actually was joking with some people not long after I got here and said, I feel like the hospital itself is like a teenager trying to figure out its identity because it was clear that there was a transition away from what someone would call a traditional medical mission hospital where people think of let's do everything we can to serve the poor and the needy. And that's the the singular primary focus to training being a, a large focus. And I would say now training is probably one of the biggest focuses of of that hospital. And I think that, you know, being here for seven years allows you to kind of see the ebbs and the flows. It allows you to be there through crises and kind of get a sense of what things are like, like a national healthcare strike, COVID, and just kind of issues with with insurances like the National Healthcare Fund or what they call NHIF. And so when you're there for such a long period of time, you kind of get more of a true sense of of where things are going within the the regional community of of medicine and it allows you to try to to build in a way that makes sense with that one of the things that i think is really important short term or long term is making sure that you're that you're working under a local team and so our hospital is completely kenyan owned and kenyan run our you know, the hospital administration to the medical director are all Kenyans. And so everything that we do from, you know, each individual person, whether they're expat or Kenyan, is like a it's like a normal hospital you'd see in the US where it has to go through these channels. So anything that I've tried to do within the ENT uh, perspective goes through all the the channels. And so I think that helps make things sustainable. Um, I would say that, you know, budgets are different than some hospitals in the US. And so when you're trying to create things, you, you're kind of not as, as able to be as deep from a personnel standpoint as you might like to be or have some kind of redundancy if somebody leaves. And so for that reason, I think it does take time because you may train somebody and a year later, they may leave. And so it, it takes time to figure out what sticks and, and what doesn't. Yeah. And, and that type of capacity building is the hardest to do probably, but many believe and agree that that's the best way to create sustainability. And, and Dave, I'd love to hear you know the same question directed towards you, but I'd love to understand how your academic relationship that you spend half the year or so in does that augment your ability to create capacity abroad? Yeah, I think that um, the I'll, I'll just wanted to comment on what you had mentioned first, Josh, was the from going from like, what am I able to do in a short period of time versus a longer period of time? I think the main the main thing is what, what can be gained from a longer period of time is that it's like a all of a sudden you can understand something. In, in like more dimensions. It's almost like a three-dimensional understanding or four-dimensional understanding of what's going on because you're living in it. It's not any complicated thing that or some highly intelligent type person needs to figure out. It's just you're living in it. So when you show up at, at, you know, in the morning report and there's patients that 
you know, just don't have money and the residents are like pooling together money for medicine, or you have to choose which patient is going to go to the OR and both are, you know, need to go to the OR for their life, then you are, you are viscerally feeling the problem. Or when you see, you know, like I've had patients waiting in the waiting room and they come in and the mother unwraps them and they've died in the waiting room. This is like, this, this has a whole new understanding as opposed to the, the shorter trip is, I don't, I don't, in fact, I'm involved in a lot of shorter trips um, myself as well, but the shorter trip has like, it's more like a one dimensional thing. There are 30 patients at the end of that trip who are going to have life-saving surgery or life-improving surgery. And for them, that's everything. But it just, it, then beyond that, you don't understand the complexities of the problems that Dave Nolan was talking about. So I think the main thing is like an understanding and like a respect for the the grander problem. And then not that you even have a solution to that, but then you are standing next to your African colleagues with a deeper understanding of the of the magnitude of the problem. And I think then there's like a more of a mutual respect in how to approach certain problems. And I've been on the flip side of, you know, I, I, so I've been going off for a short-term cleft trip in Zimbabwe, which I've done for 10 years and work on training. And there are ways to make short-term trips more impactful for, by, t- by including teaching or an educational day. But then I've also, you know, I'm very frustrated when a short-term trip comes in to Rwanda's, you know, Rwanda's teaching hospital. And then I, you know, all my OR gets booted for the week and, and, you know, I'm facing the same problems with a huge list of patients. So it basically, I think is this, understanding by spending more time, you just have a deeper understanding. So in terms of the academic question, Josh, is I think from an academic standpoint, global surgery historically has been largely driven by faith-based organizations. If we go back a couple hundred years and then um, more recently, NGOs as well. And then, but I think academic, academic surgery has a role to play because there's there's really the teaching crux and the, the crux of the of teaching, which is is where the sustainability factor comes in. It's where you can do more than just the one dimensional thirty patients in front of you. You're going to do you're going to do the surgeries for these patients and move on. But it's where you are passing on. You know things can grow exponentially, which we all understand. So academic surgery really focuses on that. That's what academic departments do. They teach surgeons. And then they also do research. They answer questions and they, um, in, a, in a rigorous, critical way. So the research component of that and then service too. Usually academic departments are usually taking care of a poorer patients. So that translates very well to the global surgery world. And I think that there's a lot of people in academic medicine that want to be involved in global surgery in, in more than the one or two one-week trips, week trips per year. And that that's growing rapidly now. And I think that that in the next, I think that's going to continue to grow rapidly. That's very well said. You know, Cynthia has a, you know, a wrapping up question for you guys in a second. But, you know, what what you're getting to there that I feel is universal is, is the idea in global health of vertical versus horizontal funding. Vertical funding is by far the most common and that's where you have a unidimensional idea and something very specific in which to treat and fix. And so it's very easy to sell that to somebody who has the capacity to fund. And so you say, hey, we're going in to fix cleft lips. We're going to do 30 patients. It's going to change all their lives. And it's going to be in and out in a couple of weeks. And that funding is easy to maintain. But horizontal funding 
uh, is how do you change capacity with an entire system from within, which is what David was spending a lot of time talking about working in his institution and trying to achieve horizontal funding to bring up an entire institution for a common goal is often very difficult to find people willing to do that because it doesn't have that kind of um, lack of a better term, a sexy title to it or, you know, something to really put your finger on. All very interesting things. And I appreciate you guys' input. Um, Cynthia? Yes. um, I'm just so impressed and inspired by how you've both been able to incorporate global surgery to such a great degree into your careers. And I don't imagine that it's been easy at all. But can you talk about the personal challenges and the family life balance aspect of things and how that's looked like for you over the years? Dave, do you want to start with this one? Sure. Um, yeah, Cynthia, I think that's it, that's a really important question because this is something we're all thinking of, especially coming out of residency. Many people either have a family or are thinking about a family or a significant other. And in my case, um, yeah, I had a, I had a, um, a young baby uh, who was only, th- you know, I think three months old. Maya was three months old when we first came to Rwanda with my wife. So I think having a partner who's, who's like-minded and sees a lot of value and, and has similar values and ideas um, is, is absolutely critical. And then that, has, that is a challenge to come with a young baby. But then you know, we have three daughters now, um, seven, five, and three. And you know, they've been multiple times. They come every year since they've been born. And yeah, there's the challenges of just like traveling and going back and forth. And there's, there's schooling that, um, that can also be a challenge. So all of these along the way, someone has said, you know, when I was a medical student saying I wanted to do something like this, someone had said, yeah, you, but you could just do one week a year. And, or someone else said, well, that'll stop when you, you know, get out of residency or that'll maybe when you have kids, you know, that won't really work. And people still say that to me today, but there's, if there are ways to think outside the box and to make things happen. So um, in fact, my, so we do sort of a hybrid schooling where my kids are in public school when in the fall, when I'm there, and then when we're here, they do. A, they've been in school here in in Kigali at a Montessori school, or my wife is now homeschooling them. And so I think there are there are huge values in that. Like people think there, there's certain tracks that we're used to, but um, there's another. You know, there's very valuable um, games in that where they can learn. Also, they have learn language. Um, they w- work at community centers here. Um, and take music lessons here, and they get to see a different uh, part of the world. So I know it's different. It's not maybe for everyone, but I would just say that if there are challenges, they can be, you know, a lot of times they can be creatively solved, and a lot of times there's a huge um, benefit in there wrapped in. For sure. Thank you for that perspective. Um, And David, what about you with living in Kenya for the past seven years? How has that worked for you and your family? Sure. So there are definitely positives and there are definitely some struggles. You know, my wife and I got married three months before we moved here. And then our first son was born at the hospital here. And basically, since we've been here, we've had four kids. Currently, the oldest one is five. And there's some real benefits, like Dave is saying, of of kids getting exposed to different cultures, different different parts of the world that their counterparts in the U.S. don't get to see and don't get to enjoy. There are, you know, the downsides of 
we're not close to our family physically, even though we're both of us are very close with our families. Like we would love to be next to our family, but here we are on the other side of the world. Um, one nice thing is technology has changed dramatically, even in the seven years that we've been here, like before trying to do FaceTime when we first got here was was pretty pointless you you see their face flash up and then it disappears and now those things are a little bit more reliable at least where we are here in kenya and so i think if somebody is really interested in doing this you just figure out how how to make it work um, for your family i do think you know schooling is is one of the bigger issues for most people considering these options. There are a lot of international schools in, you know, different countries um, in Africa and around the world where you can be able to uh, have the same level or the same curriculum that would allow you to go to U.S. school if you want your child to go to U.S. school. There's homeschooling options. There's these hybrid blended options, depending on where people are and their internet connectivity. So I think the world is shrinking overall as technology improves and communication improves. Um, but it doesn't change the, you know, some of the challenges of, of missing birthdays, missing anniversaries, not being there when loved ones are sick. Those, those are those are issues. And I would say for most people that live and work um here full time the two biggest challenges are parents who are getting older and they're sick and then you know if if a child is not doing well or are struggling with a certain um school you know we we will actually be transitioning back to the US because of schooling issues because the the school next to us will not have an option for any of our kids for at least the next 18 months and so that's really challenging you know for us with so many young kids and being in a resource constrained place where we, you know, I don't have multiple, multiple partners where we can, you know, break up call schedules as, as infrequently as maybe you could in the US. And so those are all things that are challenges. But overall, I'd say that the the experience of getting to live here with our Kenyan colleagues and, and our friends, both from the U.S. And, and other countries in the world, far outweighs like the 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 struggles and the hardships because it's just such a a rich and vibrant experience, and we have learned far more than we've ever <laughs> given. And I think anyone that's interested in in pursuing this kind of work already gets that and already knows that. I guess I would just like to encourage any any listener that there are multiple ways to be involved um, in global health, whether it's doing a a short-term trip, um, whether it's you know living somewhere long-term, doing something in between where you're moving back and forth. There's ways to be involved with research, like Dave Shea was saying. Would also like to echo what he said about academics. I know that Vanderbilt University has been so instrumental in the growth of our hospital in the past several years with the collaboration from research, from visiting faculty members, from residents, um, providing, you know, additional hands in, in labor to being available for consults. So even even people who are not here, I'm I'm constantly reaching out to people in academics and asking them questions. And I also think another thing that people can be involved in is resource mobilization, whether you're in a private practice and are thinking about getting rid of, you know, or upgrading to the next 
system or light source, there are so many hospitals around the world that can use use those things. So I think the more we're creative, the more we think outside the box, the more we get to know our our colleagues in other countries and get to know them on a personal level and, and what the struggles are and the needs are and, and just seeing how we can collaborate together, the better, the better it will be. And I think what both of you are echoing is just so beautiful. And when I when I moved to Ethiopia and started to learn about the both of you, I've been looking up to you as mentors ever since. And, and um, I'm so happy you're here and able to speak candidly about what works and what doesn't. And it's very meaningful to me. I think what you both have said a couple of times is that, you know, getting to the level of global surgery commitment that the both of you do is difficult and that there really isn't an algorithm in which to do it. But if you want to do that and that's important to you and potentially your family, you can figure it out. There's a way to do it. And I think that will be very helpful to to a lot of our listeners today. So thank you so much for the both of you of joining us today and looking forward to working together in the future. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much, Josh and Cynthia. This podcast series was created by Cynthia Choya and Josh Wiedemann. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as the editing, writing, and production teams for making this episode possible. Look in the description of this episode for a link to additional resources, such as a written summary of the episode and citations for references that were made to key global surgery articles. Visit headmirror.com slash global dash surgery dash podcast for the full list of our episodes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.